Hello, and welcome to season two of We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. The red tights and the gold stilettos, that was amongst the more restrained of Betty's day wear options. Halfway through the song, she stopped and talked about, talked about what the song meant to her and how it's a song about everybody she's lost. Your people say fierce. We hear the young people say all the time, oh, she was fierce, so-and-so was fierce. No, they weren't, but Susie was. That's the thing about the real heroes. They're interior touchstones. When you're panicking, when you're blue, when you're frightened, you can turn to them. You never felt Bowie was saying, you can never be me. In fact, you felt the opposite. I mean, the operative word is we, right? Why do people love that song? We can be heroes, not I can be a hero. My guest today is writer, theatre director and performer, Neil Bartlett. I first met Neil in the late 1980s after seeing his landmark production, A Vision of Love Revealed in Sleep. Since then, he's produced an astonishing body of work, which includes books, theatre adaptations and original plays and performance pieces. His latest book is a dress book, a cycle of stories which take us to seven very different times and situations exploring gay lives, past and present. Hello, Neil, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Who is the first person that you'd like to talk about today? The first one I'd like to talk about is Betty Bourne. The actor Betty Bourne, probably best known still for being the creator and leading lady of a radical drag troupe called The Blue Lips. Um, Betty's been a very important person in my life. First of all, I think seeing Betty walk across stage for the first time in a little red dress trimmed with tea strainers and a pair of second-hand red platform shoes, I think something inside me snapped. And ever since that moment, I've been a liberated person. So that was the first tidal wave of bettiness that hit me. When was that, Neil? I wonder when it was. I'm going to guess and say it would have been 1984. And then I was privileged enough to work with Betty several times as an actor. We did A Vision of Love Revealed in Sleep, which was an important theatre show that kind of branded me in a way as a performer and as a writer and director um, in the late 80s. 
with Betty Bourne and Regina Fong and Ivan Cartwright as my kind of backup trio. And then Betty came and worked for me when I was running the Lyric Hammersmith, when I was artistic director there all the way through the 90s. We did Shakespeare together. We did Oscar Wilde together. A truly great actor. I mean, someone who epitomises theatre for me. And now Betty is, I'm happy to say, my very dear friend. And Betty now has uh, dementia. And I have the great pleasure and privilege sometimes of helping to look after him. So he's much on my mind because tomorrow I'm spending the whole day with him. Once a month or sometimes more often, I go over to Betty's house and do respite care so that his uh, husband, Precious Pearl, Paul Shaw, can uh, just go out for the day and be footloose and fancy free. So I get to Betty's it all day tomorrow. He's a beautiful and really important person in my life. The real reason why he's a hero is I just remember thinking, maybe that's how to be a man. I don't mean you have to wear a dress and high heel shoes, though I have to say, in my experience, it really, really helps. But just seeing Betty's freedom and Betty's command of the world, I've always felt that's what liberation feels like. And I was a young man, I just arrived in London, and I was, I was ready for someone to give me permission to be myself. And I think Betty, in some ways, more than almost anyone did that. So a good place to start on my list of people who I find it hard to put into words just how much. I mean, I love Betty, but I admire him so much as a gay liberationist. And as an actor, I mean, oh my God, if, if, you, if you're listening to this and you've never seen him and you think, oh, what's Neil talking about? So it's Betty Bourne, Betty as in Betty Davis, bossy Betty. Um, look at some pictures or if you can find a clip online. And that is, that is an actor the like of which we only see a very few of in a generation. And that doesn't matter if he's playing... Shakespeare, or if he's prancing around with a bunch of drag queens, he defines for me what performance is. I love him. I love him very much. I'm really looking forward to seeing him tomorrow. I first met Betty, it would have been the late 80s, and I was going to interview Blue Lips for Capital Gay newspaper. And I was at the drill hall and I was inside the office and Betty arrived and I could only see the top half. <laughs> she explained that she'd walked in from Notting Hill and she walked around and she was wearing bright red tights and stilettos. And I was just so impressed that she'd managed, A, to walk from Notting Hill in stilettos and B, that she was walking the streets in the daytime looking so bold at that time in my life. Because the late 80s for me were quite a scary time on the streets in lots of ways. And yeah. to see somebody having that courage was incredibly inspiring. Yes, the complete absence of fear. Once that rule has been broken, no one can ever put it back together again. When you see someone's body and you see that look, I mean, 
The red tights and the gold stilettos, that was amongst the more restrained of Betty's day wear options. And it wasn't accompanied with that tightly wound, what are you looking at, I'm ready for trouble kind of tension. Betty walked with this kind of leonine assurance. I mean, it helped that he was completely fucking gorgeous. I mean, Betty is one of the butchest men any, any of us have had the chance to meet. Yet he's got this raving beauty at that point in his life, shoulder length chestnut hair, which he always was tossing back in his trademark gesture. As I say, he walked the streets like a lion, unafraid, beautiful, always ready with a drop dead reply. And also, I think a really important thing about Betty from Hackney. It wasn't a posh queen coming in from the West End and saying, my income and my education allows me to rise above all that homophobic shit. It was absolutely the opposite. I mean, Betty is pure East End. He's pure Hackney. I wish I could have introduced him to Harold Pinter, who's another one of my great heroes. Um, when Harold and I uh, briefly our paths crossed professionally a couple of times, because I think Bet and Harold would have got on like a house on fire because they they shared that world of you really don't take any shit from anybody if you come from Dalston. Betty's one of the rare gentlemen of whom one can use the word magnificent. I mean, he he could take your breath away sometimes with, oh my, as you say, I cannot believe you're walking around in those famous red tights and boy, didn't she have marvellous legs and still does actually. The legs are still fantastic. Um, and at other times she would just take your breath away with her wisdom, with the way that she could let you know, you know what, you can spend your rest of your life worrying about what people think of you, or you could be proud and queer and get on with it. And I'd rather suggest you take the latter path. I mean, she. sometimes she would say that, but other times she would just be it. And I think that's the thing about the real heroes. We can go to them either in our minds or in our memory, or we can stick on an album or a movie, or we go and see them, or if they're people we know, we can go and have a cup of tea. But actually, they're interior touchstones. When you're panicking, when you're blue, when you're frightened, you can turn to them and the memory of how they are. And sometimes just the memory of how they are is enough to bring you back to yourself and you can access your strength. You know, it's very, it's very hard to be depressed, frightened or anxious if you think about those marvellous gold strappy sandals that Betty chose to wear with those red tights. Exactly. You go, you can't help but think, I think probably life's all right. I share your admiration and love of Betty. Whenever he's come along to Polari, you can feel the energy and the love and the admiration people have for him. She can still really light a room up.
I've seen I've seen Betty do that this year. Still amazing, amazing. God save our gracious Queen. God save indeed. Who is the next person you'd like to talk about? Well, compare and contrast. My next hero is also Betty, Bette Midler, who I adore. I've never met Bette Midler. I'm not sure I could. I think if I ever met Bette Midler, I would just burst into tears. It would just be too much. I think she's too wonderful. I've always loved her voice. I think she's a genuinely great performer. She makes me cry all the time. And what really, the moment I go back to, if I need her to sprinkle a little hero dust on my life, is the last time she played London. And her signature ballad is um, that she does at the end of every concert is Stay With Me Baby. And in later life, which famously when she started to sing it was very much almost Janis Joplin style, incredibly reckless vocally, writhing around on the floor, fucking herself with a microphone. I mean, unbelievable, beautiful bravado performance. But when she does it now, she sings it as a mature woman. And halfway through the song, when last time she was playing in London, she stopped and talked about, whew, talked about what the song meant to her and how it's a song about everybody she's lost. And it's just, it, I was going to say it broke my heart, but it did the opposite. She dared in front of a packed concert arena to just stop halfway through a power ballad, which is a very risky thing to do if you're a mature woman who's been singing rock and roll your whole life. You know, the voice doesn't move between singing and speaking very easily. And she did this incredible thing where she just talked to the crowd about what the song meant. And uh, in a way, she does what I've always wanted to be able to do in performance, where she's a supremely accomplished technician. She, she can use her voice as well as anyone. It's a really good voice, but it ain't the world's greatest voice, but she makes it work for her. But it, with everything she sings, no matter how trashy she gets or sentimental or pyrotechnic, at any moment she can drop it, look straight at you and mean it. And that's, that's the holy grail of performance for me. I mean, one of the schlockiest things she ever did was that movie For the Boys. And in the middle of it, she sings... She plays a concert singer who's touring, I think, in Korea or Vietnam. I can't even remember that much about the movie. But she sings, uh, um, I'm going to love you as long as I love you, come rain or come shine. Schlocky old song, schlocky old movie. It's just one of the best bits of romantic singing in Hollywood history. I think, I think it's right up there with... Dear Mr. Gable, sung by Judy Garland. I mean, she is just completely... Am I allowed to use the F word on this podcast? She's completely fucking magnificent. There's that word again. 
somebody who deals exclusively in the finer things of life, while at the same time being as dirty as a back room in Amsterdam on a wet Wednesday afternoon. I mean, <laughs> that woman is, she out dirties all of us and we love her for that. So I thought I'd choose her just because Bet and Bet, uh, two completely different people, one of whom I know as intimately as it's possible to know one of one's friends and one of whom, of course, I will never meet in a million years. But they are both great heroines of mine. I've never seen Midler live. Should she tour again, I, I have to go because I've never had the yeah. experience of seeing her live. It sounds incredibly moving, that concert. It was. And to generate that power of emotion, playing the O2, the ugliest, least emotion-generating room in not just London, but the entire Northern Hemisphere, I would imagine. I mean, you might as well try and be intimate with people or encouraging with people in flipping Terminal 5. So, yeah, bet and bet. They're quite high up in the pantheon. They're a great pairing. Yeah, they have many things in common, in a way. A love of red sequins. And both bawdy. Bawdy, yes. They redefine bawdy. Okay, who is next on your list? The next one on my list is someone who's much less famous, but matters to me equally. And the next one on my list is a Spanish novelist called Juan Gautisola. Short version of his life. He, he left Spain under Franco and spent the rest of his life trying to scour out his language so he could remove all traces of the crime of fascism from Spanish itself and produce this astonishing series of novels, which I first met in the late 1980s because... Serpent's Tale, who published my first three novels, also published him. And so Pete Ayrton, who ran Serpent's Tale, gave me Juan's books to read. And there's one in particular called The Virtues of the Solitary Bird, which is his meditation on the devastation of HIV AIDS. He was a great inspiration to me in my early writing. He really challenged me to raise my game. The Virtue of the Solitary Bird famously starts on page 13. It just starts on page 13. And it, the first thing it says, don't ask me to explain what happened. Fantastic, fantastic trick of writing. So I loved him and then I was lucky enough to meet him. He, he came to this country on a sort of not a promotion tour because he didn't do anything like that, but he was talking to some academics in Oxford. He went on late in his life. He lived in Paris in exile, but when his wife, um, Monique Lang, died, Gautisolo was gay himself and an out gay writer all his life, but he had this astonishing marriage with Monique Lang in Paris. And when she died, he went back to the world that he really loved, which was the Moorish world of North Africa, the Moorish world that he felt was the true cultural ancestry of Spain. And he became a great champion of Moorish oral culture, the unspoken underclass 
culture of uh, Marrakesh in particular. Anyway, he was in Oxford doing some work around that and I got to meet him. Pete Ayrton sent me to interview him. And he was this little man. You wouldn't look twice at him. Tiny, grey, brown, brown skin, grey hair. And he told me something. And I want to get the words right, so I'm just reaching over my desk to get the quotation down. One was a, a close friend and protégé in some ways of Jean Genet, who wrote Our Lady of the Flowers, who also would be on my list of heroes. If one didn't think that that would be to court trouble because Genet would so loathe with every fibre of his being the idea of being anyone's hero. But Juan knew Jean and at the end of our conversation he asked me about my writing and I said the, the thing about me when I write a book I never know how it's going to end up and I feel if I was a real writer, if I was a real proper writer I'd be able to work it all out on paper and then I'd write it properly whereas when I write for a long time I just write. I don't know where the story is going to take me. And one said, uh, young man, can I stop you right there? He said, I want to pass on to you something that Jean Genet said to me when I was a young writer. And what Genet said was, if you know where the story is going to take you, that's not literature, it's a bus timetable. And that's a very dangerous credo for a writer but it's one I try and live by. There was only one chair in the room, so one sat in the chair and I sat on the bed. And we had that conversation about Jeunet and I felt a touch from the past. I think that's something our heroes do for us. They make us believe they're singing or writing or dancing or whatever, it, or playing football if that's your thing. They're doing it for us. Everyone, everyone says that, don't they? You know, I was at Earl's Court and Bowie was singing Heroes and he looked at me. No, he didn't look at you, darling. He was looking at 10,000 people. But what you're expressing is they spoke my life for me better than I could speak it myself. Our heroes make, they make us known to ourselves. I think that's their function, even though almost by definition, they all do. I think a hero is someone who does something that you can't even dream of doing yourself, whether that's in terms of achievement or they just, they love better, they sing better, they dress better, they, they do something unimaginably better than we do. And yet they seem to be promising us the opposite. You never felt Bowie was saying, you can never be me. In fact, you felt the opposite. I mean, the operative word is we, right? Why do people love that song? We can be heroes, not I can be a hero. We did an event, you and I, together about 12 years ago, maybe, at the Drill Hall. And I read that first page. You did. I remember that really vividly. What he's describing is... AIDS walking down the steps into a sauna. 
the moment when it arrives and chooses its next death. It's an unforgettable piece of writing. I've only read that one book. I've not read the others. The next one you should read is the last book he ever wrote. It's a conversation between himself and death. And basically it's him asking death why it killed his wife. And it's called The Blind Rider. He stares death right in the eye right in the eye and he tells death to fuck off the only person i can think of who's ever written about their own obviously bowie wrote about his own death on black star but also derek jarman's later books where he writes so unflinchingly about his own mortality i still find those books overwhelming to read still to this day derek's another good illustration of i mean he's a hero to a lot of people myself included, but the way in which he enables you. You leave his work stronger, wiser, better. And that's his explicit intention. That's what he saw his job as. I can hear Derek laughing now and saying, oh, for God's sake, go make a cup of tea. But it's true. It's true. There's a completely charismatic quality of generosity that's underlying all of Derek's work, whether that's the films or the journals or the garden. Who else would create one of the loveliest gardens we've ever seen and not put a wall around it? And that's the point of the garden at the cottage. There is no wall, there's no beginning or end to that garden. And that was that was one of the be- most beautiful gestures I think he ever made. You don't even notice it. I think most people don't even notice. You know, the definition of an English garden, whether it's your mum's patch of lawn in front of the semi, or whether it's Chatsworth, is that it's got boundaries, right? Don't don't cross my garden fence. Dungeness is a conversation with the horizon, and that's why I go there quite often because I'm a bird watcher, so I often go to Dungeness. And there's always some Japanese 19-year-old or a pair of grey-haired butchers stumbling over the stones in tears. And they, they never met him. They never worked with him. But they, they're having a conversation. With, they're saying thank you. When people burst into tears outside the cottage, they're saying thank you for what Derek gave us. There's a young chap in Manchester, a guy called Will, who became part of the Polari events we were doing up in Manchester. And I introduced him to Derek's work and he's become completely obsessed with him. It was so heartening to hear that it still felt relevant, that it still connected with him, it still spoke to him. I have such fond memories of Derek. He was always so kind to me, as he was to many people. He was a perfect gentleman, amongst other things. Yeah, he was incredibly kind. I'm very proud of the fact that I was asked to write the introduction to the last volume of the journals when they came out in paperback. That was a very great honour. Who is next? Well, here's a list of options. So Ruth Rendell, um, Pina Bausch, who I've mentioned, Susie Sue or Rosemary. Now, can you do Rosemary? I don't know about Rosemary. 
did you ever used to go to the Elephant Castle? Yeah. So the Elephant Castle is the pub that makes the Royal... Well, we're talking 80s now. It was the pub that made the Royal Vauxhall Tavern look classy. You know, it was the wrong side of Vauxhall bus station. And Rosemary used to dress sort of like a dodgy librarian, is how I would describe the look, or either a dodgy librarian or an unemployed lorry driver who was dressing as a dodgy librarian with lipstick scrawled on a sort of letterbox mouth. And she only did um, Total Eclipse of the Heart was her <laughs> number. And she used to have this marvellous mime routine that she did once upon a time. She had a face like roadkill and she only ever did one number and she was always half cut. But everybody loved her and loved that number. And, you know, I don't have to tell you in the late 80s the importance of the safe space of a gay bar and all being inside and not being frightened, not being harassed, not at a funeral, not dodging someone gobbing at you on the bus or whatever else was going on on a daily basis. To be in a shitty old South London queer pub with all your mates, all pissed on gyro night, and there was Rosemary going once upon a time there was light in my life but now there's only love in the dark nothing you can do i mean it was pure bliss in heaven i thought she was completely wonderful and she's the opposite of the other people i've talked about the other people i've talked about are all supreme artists you know they're unbelievably good at their job and let's be honest, Rosemary wasn't. You know that, that certain tradition of drag that turns the catastrophic into the heroic? Regina Fong, Reg Bundy did that. Reg was a great big hulking brute of a man. I mean, Reg was, he was big in every sense of the word and he wasn't a beauty and he wasn't confident, he couldn't sing, he wasn't a very good dancer. He would often not remember which backing track came next. And yet he took all of that and he turned it into this incredible flowering of laughter and love. And that's part of what I love about both of the Bettys, is they take the... I am going to embarrass myself beyond credibility. I am going to scrape every barrel known to man. And that's before I've even sung my first number. And they take that kind of ludicrous catastrophe of, their, of themselves and they, through sheer force of their artistry, they elevate it into something that we then never forget. And Rosemary could do that just before she fell off the stage. I do remember that venue because it was the first place that I saw the Divine David as was. Now there's a lovely man. I, I have the honour of sharing uh, a dressing room, a trailer in a park with David 
a couple of weeks ago at Pride in Manchester, we were both uh, doing a turn at the AIDS vigil in Sackville Gardens. I love David. I love David. He's an extraordinary man. Thank God he's still with us because he, he travels a hard road. God love him. If you're listening, David, you're wonderful and your name is worthy to be spoken in this illustrious company. Shall we talk about Susie Sue? I'd love to hear your feelings about Susie. My feelings about Susie are embarrassing, Paul, because they have not changed. I'm a gibbering fan. She's just fantastic. So when I was at college, um, how did I discover Susie Sue? I've no idea, but that's how punk worked. You didn't have to live in London. Somehow the tentacles of record publication meant that the first time I heard Hong Kong Garden, just the rest was history. I, I think it's one of the great pop records. And then when I was at college, Join Hands, I love Join Hands, her version of the Lord's Prayer on side one. I love the artwork on the cover. It was how I discovered the work of uh, Charles Jagger, who was the sculptor who created the war memorial that's on the front cover of Join Hands. And I loved her on Top of the Pops. My second year at college, um, I went to Oxford. I was very lucky. I arrived as a little mouse. I mean, I was the whitest person you'd ever met. I was a small town in West Sussex. And by my second year, I discovered feminism. I discovered gay liberation. And I spent the whole of my second year with Susie's makeup. If you need to know how to rock China pink eyeshadow, talk to me. I'll tell you all about it. Then when I left college, I got to see Susie. I was in Bristol for a year having a terrible time but Susie played the Colston Hall and I went to see her and she was she was working the belted raincoat look that evening you know people say fierce we hear the young people say all the time oh she was fierce so and so was fierce no they weren't but Susie was you know that was a kind of fuck off wake up you haven't even started. That's what I felt Susie was saying to me. She was going, you haven't even started. Wonderful, such a great dancer, such a great vocal stylist, wonderful, fantastic, loved everything about her. And then I saw her again when she played the Raw Festival Hall. I was lucky enough to see that with a, you know, one of those classy gigs with a string section. It was fantastic, actually. My friend, Stu and Leslie, the choreographer, so it was at the Royal Festival Hall and to while away the time before the gig started, I'd gone to what was the name of the sauna on the cut in chariots. I'd been having a very nice time, thank you, all afternoon. Then it was time to go and see Susie. So I was in the locker room of the sauna doing my Susie face, stark bollard naked, apart from my china pink blusher and eyeliner and three strings of pearls, naturally, which is always my look if I'm going out. And I bumped into my friends, Drew and Leslie. We bumped into each other in front of the mirror and fell into each other's arms, roaring with laughter, and then put some clothes on and went to see Susie. I was up in my seat and dancing from the word go, and I love... 
you know, I love Manta Ray. That's how much of a fan I am. Okay, so Susie, if you're listening, I would, I would love to meet you. And what an exemplary career, you know, all the pitfalls of the industry that she chose to work in and how elegantly and ferociously she moved through that and made her voice heard and kicked all those doors down and then got out when she wanted to and then came back when she wanted to. I mean, that's a really important part of my admiration for her, how she's put together that body of work absolutely without compromise in terms of her sound or her content or her look. Fucking mad about her and I don't care who knows it. Power, power, that's something else all of these people have in common in very different aspects of how power operates in the world, but they show their power, they show their strength, they use their strength. This has been wonderful, Neil. Thank you so much for talking with me today. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to Neil for being such a great guest. And you can find out more about him and his work by visiting his website, neil-bartlett.com. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. This is Kerry Hudson on We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. She died really far too early, but she was a sort of pioneer of writing about working class life in a way that was celebrated and critically acclaimed. She is my first Shiro. It's all Shiro's, by the way, of course. <laughs> this has been We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>